Foreign Interference in Australia. It is essential for us to do our work that we have a good picture of the threat environment that we face and that we have a good understanding of the current capabilities of our agencies and their future desired capabilities so that we can make sure the legislation meets that. The federal budget and Northern Australia. But for me, it's like treating the North as we do with aid for a developing nation, which provides enough for subsistence, if you like, of a particular nation, but not enough to drive prosperity. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Ashley McNeil, as your special presenter. Recently, Peter Jennings spoke to Victorian Senator James Patterson, who chairs the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. They discuss the committee's recent inquiry into national security risks affecting Australia's higher education and research sectors, the Senator's role as Chair and Australia's foreign interference laws. Well, I'm here with James Patterson from the great state of Victoria. James, great to see you. How are you? Really well, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, James, you're the Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. And um, over the last few years, this committee has developed a reputation of being a little out of the ordinary compared to other parliamentary committees, if I can put it that way. Is that right? And what makes it special? I think that is a fair observation, Peter. It is really the only committee of the parliament which has consistently managed to uphold its long culture and tradition of bipartisanship. There was an era in Australian politics where some committees, some other committees were also able to do that, particularly through the 1980s and 1990s. Senate committees were regarded as being particularly bipartisan, but a lot of that has fallen away as our politics has become more partisan in other arenas. The PJCS is one of the few, if not the only ones that has held on to that, despite pressure from time to time from a range of different points of view that call upon us to do that. And I think it's important, it's attractive for governments to be able to know that if they send a piece of legislation to the committee and if the committee concludes it in a bipartisan way that it'll be assured of passage of that bill through the parliament and we don't have to have messy and sensitive debates in the parliament on national security matters. I also think it's important in the geopolitical environment that we're in that although we have genuine philosophical differences from time to time and we should never paper over those, we don't want to have needless partisanship based on politics alone because that will allow our adversaries to try and separate us and weaken us as a result. Yeah. Is it the sort of high stakes of the issues that the committee deals with, do you think, which has enabled that sense of we've got to work together on this in the committee? No question. I mean, it is a committee more than any other, which is driven by the national interest. And I think people do understand that when it comes to national security, that unnecessary politicking can be dangerous and can undermine it. On my watch in the last 12 months, the committee has concluded 22 reports. Every single one of them was bipartisan. Every single one of them was unanimous. But we have to work very hard to do that because we often are coming at it from different perspectives. We often do have different views. And to bridge those philosophical divides, you've got to have a good attitude and a willingness to compromise and negotiate and try and arrive at a consensus view. Another difference, just quickly, is it takes a fair amount of classified material as well, and that, that's, I think, pretty unusual in the parliamentary committee world, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're the only parliamentary committee that has a classified and security-cleared secretariat that can receive and hold classified information, and we're the only committee that is regularly briefed by our intelligence agencies to quite a high degree of security classification, and our agencies use their judgment about what and when is appropriate, and we use our judgment about what and when to ask for so that it's not needlessly sensitive, but 
it is essential for us to do our work that we have a good picture of the threat environment that we face and that we have a good understanding of the current capabilities of our agencies and their future desired capabilities so that we can make sure the legislation meets that and also so the public has confidence that this is being robustly overseen by their own elected representatives. Yeah. James, in early March, you led a parliamentary delegation to the UK and the US with a focus on AUKUS. Can you tell us about the visit? What conclusions did you draw about the prospects of AUKUS? Peter, I've visited the United States about a dozen times. I've lived in Washington, D.C. twice, and I have never had as warm or a generous a reception as I had on this trip. Something has fundamentally changed in the last couple of years about our strategic environment that has turbocharged the relationship. Now, obviously, China has been a big part of that. There's a real respect and a real understanding for what Australia has done over the last five years, both in the US and the UK. They admire the stand that we've taken. They recognise the world-leading nature of a lot of our legislation. In fact, they're jealous of quite a large amount of it. And AUKUS has just put another rocket underneath that. And there's a real desire to meaningfully assist Australia in the challenges we face. I think there's a recognition that the future of the free world is going to be won or lost in the Indo-Pacific and that Australia is willing to step up to that contest and that our allies are willing to aid us in that cause is just critically important. I think AUKUS will go down as the most important international security arrangement Australia is a partner to since ANZUS. It's interesting. I mean, Australians are always going to get warm receptions in Washington, but I do have a sense from what I can see of it from this position that AUKUS has got real drive from the Oval Office. It's not just fine words. There is actually a a solid priority being attached to this, which is a fine thing. What's your sense of the UK situation? Mm. It's very similar. On previous trips to the UK, we've all been guilty of resting a little bit too heavily on the past, on our shared history, on our shared institutions, and almost kind of romanticising and focusing on that and not talking enough about the future. And I think the potential for closer security, defence and intelligence relations with the UK is really enormous. Of course, we've always cooperated through the Five Eyes and that's a greater relationship. But AUKUS takes this beyond just the intelligence realm into the military technology realm and has massive potential upside. And this time on our trip, there was no platitudes about the past and our shared history and values. That was kind of taken as a given. We were totally focused on what's next and what more can we do together. And there's great goodwill for that. So again, it's been transformative. Yeah, really interesting. I I read the speech you gave to the Henry Jackson Society in London. And one of the things that I was struck by there was the sense of urgency that you were expressing about our strategic environment. I'll I'll just quote some of your words back to you. You said, the fear I have for all of us is that we will not have a warning as stark as the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. And we certainly do not have eight years to get ready. Given the lead times involved in acquiring new military capability, none of us have a moment to waste. What's the risk that's most concerning to you? Peter, the deterioration of our security environment is there for everyone to see. You don't need access to classified information to know that China has militarised the South China Sea illegally against the commitments that they made. You don't need access to classified information to know their increasingly belligerent rhetoric towards Taiwan and the regular incursions they are making into Taiwanese airspace. That is self-evident from open source, publicly available material. I am very worried about that contingency in particular. And in order to prevent that from happening... 
Australia and our allies led by the United States need to be incredibly clear about our intent. And intent requires a couple of things. It's, it requires very clear communication, but it also requires the capability to back that up. Our communication has to be credible because it's backed by hard-edged capability. And if we want to prevent and deter conflict in our region over Taiwan or any other of the potential hotspots, whether that's in the East China Sea and the Singapore Islands or whether it's elsewhere in the First Island Chain, we're all going to need to be very credible. And so that's why I'm particularly anxious to make sure that we are acquiring the defence capability we need to make a contribution to that in a collective way with our allies as soon as possible. You know, for me, one of the lessons that comes out of Ukraine as it relates to Taiwan, and of course, everyone's kind of like juxtaposing the two situations, is that we, the West, we, the democracies, have to do a better job, I think, of making Taiwan the, the prickly porcupine so that China always calculates that it's just not worth thinking about an attack today. Sort of any thoughts on that and in particular about Australia-Taiwan relations? I agree. We have to do better than we did in Ukraine, but we shouldn't forget some of the things that did happen in Ukraine between 2014 and 2022 because there are some real lessons there. You know, Russia's lessons from the 2014 invasion were twofold. One, they thought that the Ukrainian army was incompetent, weak and corrupt. And two, they thought the West was weak and would not rally to their cause. But between 2014 and 2022, the United States and the United Kingdom in particular had an ex exceptionally successful training program, as we've now learned, for the Ukrainian military. And Ukraine themselves rearmed, re-equipped and reformed their military and made it into a much more potent fighting force. And we are seeing the dividends of that today in Russia's arrogant war plans and the way in which they've been upended by the Ukrainians. There's great lessons for Taiwan, for Australia, for Japan, for others in the region about what we need to do. We need to make sure we're acquiring the capability that we need in the time that we have, that we are training and equipping and readying ourselves in a way that sends a very clear signal to China or anyone else who wants to stabilise the status quo, that we have very serious capability and that we will be able to hold our ground. Yeah, I think this is really going to be top of mind for all of us in the next few years or so. James, just a few days ago, the PJCIS, your committee, released its inquiry into national security risks affecting the Australian higher education and research sector. I'd like to go through some of those recommendations with you, but let me start by asking perhaps a leading question. Do you assess that Australian universities are indeed the targets of foreign intelligence services? There's no question there is. Again, without resorting to reference to any classified material on the public record, in part thanks to very good work of researchers that you've employed at ASPE, in particular Alex Josky, we know that foreign intelligence services have directly targeted both sensitive military research that exists at our universities, but also dual-use technology, which might have a civilian application in Australia, but which can be used for military ends, particularly in China. And they've been very aggressively targeted. We know that the Australian National University has been hacked not once but multiple times and targeted by foreign intelligence services and that other universities have experienced similar cyber disruptions. So universities have had a bit of a wake-up call over the last five years. I'm pleased that some progress has been made, particularly with the university's foreign interference task force out of home affairs, but our inquiries show that there's much more work to do. So let's talk about some of those recommendations. The, the core one, I, I, or core ones, I guess, really go to strengthening the capacities of universities to deal with this challenge. Just take us through some of your thoughts about what should happen here. We've really got two principal concerns or two categories of concerns. One is the protection of sensitive research and intellectual property, and the other is the protection of students, 
academics and really the values of universities as open liberal higher education institutions. On the sensitive research and intellectual property, we need to be much more savvy about the risks that are posed in the cyber front on the talent recruitment program front, including the Thousand Talents program of the Chinese Communist Party, but also other potential conflicts of interest that academics could find themselves in when they're engaging internationally. We have been too naive in the past and too permissive in the past about those things. On the student academic welfare and values front, there's been some shocking reports of intimidation of both domestic students and academics, but also international students while they're studying at university. Particularly harrowing for the committee was the testimony of Human Rights Watch, who did extensive investigations into the treatment of students. And there were Chinese international students, to cite one example, who came to Australia for a liberal Western open education and said to the Human Rights Watch, we might as well stay in China because we feel like we are being surveilled and depressed and coerced just as much as we would have been if we'd stayed at home. And that's a terrible thing. And universities need to do more to protect the welfare of these students and to prevent their own values being undermined from foreign interference. Yes. That Human Rights Watch report from memory titled They Don't Understand the Fear We Have, I think was a real eye-opener. And, and that was specifically focused on China. But to be clear, your report doesn't solely focus on China. There's a, a sort of a broader range of intelligence risks and universities that you focused on, right? You're right, Peter. China is not the only country seeking to take advantage of our higher education system. There are others in this space. But I think we should also be direct and honest and say that it is the overwhelming threat. It is the vast majority of the challenges that we face. Specifically on China, then, you recommend in the report that universities, if they are minded to retain Confucius Institutes on campus, should be more public about detailing the nature of the agreements that they have with the Institute and the nature of the funding of the Institute. And you also say that the foreign minister should consider her powers under the Foreign Relations Act to potentially veto the presence of these institutes on campus. What is the concern about Confucius Institutes? Well, there's a threshold issue here, Peter, which is, is it consistent with the values of Australian universities to have a soft power initiative funded by a foreign authoritarian government, which has been accused of systemic human rights abuses on their campuses? I think they have to reflect on their own values and, and question whether that's appropriate. But if they do think it's appropriate, then I think there are some questions for universities to answer and for the government to answer. Firstly, they must be utterly transparent. We must know the exact details about the funding and the agreements between the universities to host Confucius Institutes. Not all of them are currently transparent. We must ensure that universities have exclusive control over the hiring and firing of academics or other employees of the Confucius Institutes and the curriculum that is set at the institutes. And we know that many universities do not have these protections currently in place. I suspect if you did all of those things, the Chinese government would start to question about whether it's of any value to them at all, because it is supposed to be used as a soft power promotion tool for them on campus. And I know it does make the students on campus who are from China but might have pro-democracy views or from elsewhere in the Chinese diaspora like Taiwan and Hong Kong and elsewhere feel very unsafe on campus because they believe it is a tool of coercion and impression and intimidation. And so it really is a big question also for the federal government then, if universities can't meet those standards, whether we should continue to permit it. The foreign minister has the power under the Foreign Relations Act to vary or cancel those agreements if she believes it's in the national interest. Yes. There was an interesting development a couple of years ago, James, where China actually changed the organisational structure it uses to manage the Confucius Institute. So it was run previously out of an area of their education ministry known as the Hanba. 
And that ended, and all of a sudden, the case was made that Confucius Institutes were in fact being run by sort of independent NGO-type bodies not related to the Chinese political system. And I think that happened primarily because of concerns about crackdowns on Confucius Institutes on US campuses. But it was taken by a number of Australian universities as a way enabling them to say, well, this is fine. We are not actually engaging with the Chinese state, but rather this sort of NGO. I mean, what's your thoughts on, on that situation? Peter, I agree with your analysis, and I'm also concerned that this was an attempt, at least on behalf of the Chinese government, if not our universities, to evade the scrutiny of the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme and potentially to evade the powers of the Foreign Relations Act. I don't think it's a successful attempt because both of those acts are worded in such a way as to to capture conduct like this. And it is a concern to me that no Confucius Institute has registered under the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme. But I hope it is the case that universities have submitted these agreements to the federal governments as they're required to under the Foreign Relations Act. Time will tell whether they've fully complied with those obligations. But it's really important for everyone to understand that universities in China do not have institutional autonomy. Whether they are formally affiliated with the People's Liberation Army as some are, or whether they are not, they are arms of the state and they are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party and they exist only to serve its interests. And if there is ever a day where they don't serve its interests, well, then they'll cease to operate and they'll cease to be run by the people they're run by. So this is not like engaging with other universities in open, free democracies. This is engaging with universities who are tools of an authoritarian state. Balancing the equally legitimate interests of national security on the one hand versus the role of universities to engage in unfettered international cooperation. How do you, in your own mind, seek to balance those objectives? By the very nature, universities are, in Western societies at least, open and liberal, and we want them to continue to be because that's how they gain insight and that's how they develop new research and technology and that's how they share it with the world and that's the accumulation of knowledge that they drive. However, we have to recognise that a research cooperation arrangement with a university based in the United Kingdom is not the same as one based in an authoritarian country, whether that's China or anywhere else. And we can't allow our commitment to our openness to undermine our national security by allowing others to take advantage of that. And so we have to be discerning and we have to be really hard-nosed and hard-headed about this. And I don't think universities always have been. I'm particularly concerned about an arrangement between Monash University and COMAC. COMAC is the equivalent of Boeing or Airbus in China. It is a company which has been accused of industrial state espionage. It's a company which is sanctioned by the US government because it's secretly controlled by the PLA. Xi Jinping has publicly said it sits at the heart of his military civil fusion philosophy, and yet Monash University has not one but two research cooperation arrangements with them, and I really question whether that's in our national interest. It's astonishing, James. It really is. So finally then, I mean, we are, I guess, only a few days away from this parliament being prorogued, and we'll be off to the races, as it were, for an election. But what do you think is the emerging agenda for the Intelligence and Security Committee as we consider the next term of parliament? Mm. I'd say two things, Peter. One is a kind of inside the beltway, but an important one, and that's actually reform of the Intelligence Committee itself and how it operates. So the committee has not reviewed the Intelligence Services Act and the provisions that relate to us since 2001 when it was legislated. And over the last two parliaments, we have had the busiest time that we've ever had. In this parliament, we concluded 38 reports. 22 of those were in the last 12 months alone. In previous parliaments, in more benign eras, the committee would do eight or nine reports in a whole parliamentary term. And so some changes to the resources and the structure and the law governing the committee are going to be necessary if we're going to be able to keep to maintain that tempo and and deal with that workload. 
Secondly, I think we need to shift our focus from the very successful efforts we've led over the last few years to counter those grey zone threats to our national security and our sovereignty, which Australia has led the world in, to start to look at what are the hard power protections that Australia needs to get us through the next decade. Now, that's not just going to be a task for the Intelligence Committee, it's a task for the whole parliament and the whole government. But as I said in my speech to the Henry Jackson Society, it won't just be grey zone, soft power threats that we face in the future. It might well be that we're on the receiving end of very hard power in a traditional sense as we were in the 20th century, and we have to be ready for that. I don't think we are yet. We're on the right trajectory, but we've got a lot more to do. James, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for joining us to to have it. Thanks also for the work that you've done on that committee, which I think has been really fundamental in helping to inform a more sophisticated parliamentary understanding of some of the challenges that we're facing. And and I think I I really do take your words about the importance of maintaining that bipartisan approach as being something that's fundamental to the success of the committee. So, you know, thanks for everything you've done with that. And thanks for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Peter, thank you for having me. And let me say thank you to you. As you come to the end of your term at ASPE, you've been an indispensable part of that and a fantastic resource to the committee. So we're really grateful for it. That's, uh, That's nice of you to say, James. Thanks. Good talking to you. Dr John Coyne and Jill Savage from ASPE's Northern Australia Strategic Policy Centre sat down to discuss what the latest budget holds for Northern Australia. They discussed the disconnect between decisions made in Southern Australia for initiatives in the North, the limitations of siloed policy approaches and the need for cohesive bigger picture planning. So hi Jill, it's that time of year the budget's down. We've spent a week where people are trying to work out when is a port not a port when it comes to Darwin. So is it, you know, new infrastructure, is it old spending, new spending and, you know, is it magic dust? You know, so we've got some great figures here and so one point, well, here we go, $1.5 billion in WA, $2.6 billion, for these are for regional hubs in the NT and a whopping $1.7 billion for North Queensland. I thought that in terms of the Northern Australian Strategic Policy Centre, it's time for you and I to, to delve down beyond all these figures about new, old, maybe new, reallocated spending and talk a little bit about what's the problem here? Why is there so much money being spent but yet there seems to be an absence of sort of a, a bigger picture? And maybe we can start with the Darwin Port, if you'd like. Yeah, look, I think there is an absence of a bigger picture and they do sound like huge numbers. And as you say, when you dig in, you do find that there's a little bit of overlap in terms of what was previously announced. The other thing that really jumps out for me is that those are aggregate numbers that you're quoting, but they've been allocated on essentially a sectoral basis. So you can't tell really how they're going to impact communities if you're looking at communities as a whole. So there's a certain amount for roads, there's a certain amount for energy, there's a certain amount for infrastructure, but what does that mean in terms of capability at the local level? And I think that's the picture that's missing. Look, I mean, you have spent a career out of developing policy, being involved in implementation before you came along to ASPE. So I'm a national security guy by trade, so in this sort of discussion – you know, I often default to you. Now, look, to me, I look at it and go, is this a case? And I, I said before it a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, fairy dust, you know, put a little bit here, put a little bit here and spread it out and get maximum benefit. Now, I mean, as a, as a policy person, you know, is it really that thing? 
you know, is that the benefit? Should we be looking here or should we really, are we at that stage of turning around and saying, you know, some communities need to miss out and we need to be far more focused? I wouldn't agree that some communities need to miss out. I think we do need to look at it on a regional basis and think about it in terms of the capability and the strengths of particular regional areas and what's the best way to invest in those areas to get the most out of those communities. And I think there's a little bit of one size fits all in this and I think that then creates this fairy dust perception where you put a bit of bit of money for the same thing here as you would put another bit of money for the same thing over somewhere else. Those communities don't necessarily or may not necessarily need those things or have those things at the top of their priority list, but yet they're coming. So, you know, there's a disconnect between connecting the bottom up with the top down. And I don't think we've been very good at that for decades, if ever. So that's something that needs to change. And also we need to connect much more with what kind of national capability do we need in these regional areas and invest in with that at the back of the mind and use that as a principle. And look, I totally agree with you. I think that in terms of, okay, one size doesn't fit all. Northern Australia, so you and I spend a lot of time and our people who are familiar with the work that we've done together and individually, we, we talk about Northern Australia as that everywhere north of north of the line 26 south. So you have very vast, they're very different. So, you know, Cairns is extremely different than, say, Weeper, and they each has very, very different needs. But one thing that's in common with all of those, though, and this is something before the budget. Now, picking up on your point that no community needs to miss out, one thing that you and I have talked about and we've talked about with people in the north over the last several weeks is, and maybe instead of me stealing your thunder as I usually try to do, maybe <laughs> I'd turn around and say to you, let's let's talk about this. What happened in January that really proved that we do have this sort of some people miss out and, and that, that wonderful quote that I love um, the regularly giving in terms of, of what happened in January. So to recap for listeners, uh, what happened in January was that we had some major rainstorms, it's the wet season and lots of flooding in northern Australia. And we had major highways connecting north and south that were cut. We had a rail line was cut in kind of... I think a dozen places. dozen places or something kind of, you know, ridiculous when you're trying to get your head around that. And there were also new roads that had, you know being completed in uh, recent times that were also cut. So we're building roads that can't withstand the weather conditions that we're building the roads in. And for me, that is that is a real – look, I think it's, it, it's beyond sad. It's quite, you know, quite a disappointing thing and I know that people in the north have lived this for a very long time and, and probably will for – a longer time. But for me, it's like treating the North as we do with aid for a developing nation, which provides enough for subsistence, if you like, of a particular nation, but not enough to drive prosperity, not enough to drive resilience and not enough to drive national security. And I think that's you know, that, that's a big portion of Australia that we really miss out on leveraging as an opportunity. And I know people in the north are used to this and they kind of get on with it and they're incredibly self-reliant. I just don't think it's good enough and I don't think it will serve Australia well into the future. 
No, and look, I think, you know, I'm I, I deliberately baiting you then to get that conversation back out again. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is that developing model, and you and I both agree on this. So we're not, when we say that, we're not talking about the communities themselves because the communities themselves, you know, we find this, this amazing degree of entrepreneurialism, this sort of can-do, shoulder-to-the-wheel, community-minded spirit. You know, so, so you know, it's, it's not it's the communities. We, no, it's how we in the South, frame the north and then how that translates into government investment. And look, you know, this can brings me to another point before we get on to that really nitty-gritty national security piece, which is, you know, you and I have said it before, you know, what we see, and you've described in very different terms this year and, and during this podcast today, this developing type, nation type approach, uh, this aid type approach. But um, it's that two style of economy. So, you know, there's the one that we see that plays out in our major centres in Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide. And then there's the other one that plays in the north. Now, you know, I've made this point in the last couple of days, but, you know, we look at building economic resilience in the north, the numbers just really talk some amazing things, the priorities, so Indigenous economic growth, energy, supply chain infrastructure. Um, These are really good stated policies, but I guess all priorities. Um, Money doesn't make policy though, does it? No, that's right. And I think... You know, we're obviously at a particular time in the term of a government and about to have an election and I think, you know, we have to sort of approach these numbers with that in mind. You know, it is pre-election, a pre-election budget. But the thing that keeps coming out for me is the disconnect between different initiatives and their relationship with other initiatives and how well we could possibly do with less money if we just connected some of these things together. And I think the complex world is driving some of this. You know, I I don't think it's just about ministers wanting their own announcement and wanting their time in the sun. I think the complexity of our environment drives us to retreat into more siloed, more simplified spaces because when you connect things up, it becomes much more complex and much more difficult. And if you're collaborating, really collaborating, I know we use that word a lot, you have to be, you know, willing to engage and listen and shape the direction rather than make assumptions about what the direction will be. So it doesn't necessarily take time, but it takes a lot more effort and you have to be much more genuine about it. And I think that's another piece that's missing here too. Look, I guess this is this thing of, you know, I always describe it, it's an ecosystem, a system of systems. So, you know, the siloed approach is a great approach to be able to deliver policy or think through policy, but it's not necessarily a great approach to achieve strategic outcomes. And, you know, we'd be remiss here. We got over a billion dollars for Northern Territory's port. I joked around at the start, which I very tongue-in-cheek, Darwin Harbour, Darwin Port, huge amount of money spent there, multiple industries and multiple things being done. So we see, you know, there's going to be a ship lift there soon, a marine industry park, yep. which is a Northern Territory government push. We've got Crowley and the US Department putting almost $300 million down to build a really large strategic fuel reserve right next door to the Port of Darwin. Middle arm, we're going to spend all that money spent. We're going to see it doing things that are, are really quite amazing. So we're going to export more liquid natural gas. We're going to see some new industries. We're going to see railheads, some really great stuff. But 
you know, to me, I sort of sit there and think, well, what we see in the end, none of it really resolves the problem. So there's first off, we had confusion. Was it a second port? Well, it's not a second port. Secondly, what it does show is we've got all these different plans. So everyone knows, everyone's got a plan. <laughs> everyone's got a plan, but the plans don't come together. No. And the parties don't come together until no. someone sees part of a plan that conflicts with their plan and that's when yep. you get the engagement. But, you know, that's way too late. And I guess there's a loss of opportunity here. You know, and where we saw that play out in Darwin Harbour and Darwin Port, and, you know, it's, it's one really good example of where we might sort of finish off here, which is, you know, the Americans or USDOD is putting its fuel storage in right next door to the existing VOPAC, mm-hmm. uh, which is the Darwin's existing liquid fuel storage facility, and government's next investment is going to be built right next door to that. Now, wouldn't it have been great to be able to bring all of that together? And that's even before we get to resolving the issue of of the long-term lease of land bridge. Um, The shining light, of course, is the case study you and I did together looking at how Townsville has approached this for the Townsville port. Very, very different approach, still a work in progress, but it does give us hope that we can actually do this here in Australia. We've been talking about the budget, Northern Australia and some of our work. Thank you, Jill, for once again for um, joining us today to talk about Northern Australia and all things budget. Thank you, John. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Peter Jennings, Aspie's Executive Director, and Senator James Patterson, Senator for Victoria and Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Dr. John Coyne, Head of Aspie's Northern Australia Strategic Policy Centre, and Jill Savage, Senior Fellow with Aspie's Northern Australia Strategic Policy Centre. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.